Hi Indra, welcome to Network Capital. Um, it's 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 really a pleasure to host you on our platform. Our mission is to empower every millennial, every Gen Z on the planet to build their category of one. And you have done that consistently over the decades. It's an honor to host you on our platform and to discuss your career principles with us today. Putkarsh, it's a pleasure to be on your platform for two reasons. One, your platform itself, but more importantly, you. As I read your background and been reading some of the articles that you wrote in HBR, and I read a synopsis of your book, you are an extraordinary person, Utkarsh. So it's a privilege to get to know you, and I hope we get to meet in person sometime. You know, Indra, we have uh, met very briefly for a few seconds. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't remember that. But once, I think in uh, in Philadelphia or New York, there was a dinner thrown uh, by a bunch of. Uh, people to raise money for a charity and I think you were the uh, guest so we briefly spoke for a few seconds oh. but that's it this was uh, a few years back well we will find time to do a one-on-one -on -one yes. dinner yes. or meeting and chat yeah one of my biggest regrets is that I had graduated from INSEAD uh, before you taught your course there and wow. I hope uh, they make it open to alumni as well so that I can come uh, and discuss and take part in your classes you know what's been uh, fantastic is I meet young people like you and people at INSEAD for the future of the world. And this is a group of people who are driven by passion, sense of purpose, want to make a difference, want to give back in profound ways. So I feel great about what the future holds through the eyes of all of you. Oh, thank you so much, Indra. Uh, well, let's dive in. We have a lot to discuss uh, uh, today. I just want to start by asking, um, you know, you can't be what you can't see. What has been the role of relatable mentors in your life? How have they shaped uh, your career and life overall? My life has been filled with mentors and I don't think I would be where I am today, but for them. Actually in writing this book, the role of the mentors became even more evident because at every point in my life, somebody emerged and decided to mentor me. But mentor not just giving me advice, they decided to support me, they decided to pull me up and uh, gave me good advice, which if I cho chose not to take, I'd go back and tell them why I didn't take their advice. So it was a two-way street. And I think for everybody, if you want to move up any sort of a ladder and move into positions of power, having these mentors who feel vested in your success is as important as the hard work that you do yourself. So I give them a lot of credit for who I am today. Yeah. And you, I noticed that you've nurtured or cultivated this tribe of mentors. Tell me, did that happen organically or were you very intentional in building this tribe? I think it was a sense of respect and gratitude. Um, I'll take an example. Essel Rao, who was the marketing manager at Metro Biatsal in India. Um, you know, he was my mentor when I was a nobody. I mean, I was fresh out of IM Cal. I was this gawky young woman and he saw something in me and he took interest in my career and decided to sort of help me become a better manager. I was so grateful to him for taking a bet on me that I knew that I never wanted to lose touch with him. So right through my life, I've kept in touch with him and I even talked to him two or three weeks ago. It was such a joy to talk about the old times and the things he did for me and 
he still feels so vested in my success. So I think the mark of a true mentor is that they still feel vested in your success many, many years later, and you feel a sense of gratitude towards them. I think it's got to work both ways. And I remain vested with them because I'm so grateful for all that they did to make me who I am. Yeah, and you have in your career uh, mentored so many people and uh, I, I love the way you've gone about it. So it's paying it forward, but also learning. And uh, that's something that I feel that uh, um, is very important to us on Network Capital. You Absolutely. know, one of the fellowships that we run on uh, Network Capital is called I Don't Know What I Want to Do With My Life Fellowship. <laughs> so it's very popular. A lot of people, school, college, even uh, uh, executives join in sometimes. How did you figure out what you want to do with your life? You've moved countries, geographies, sectors, industries. Uh, is it important to have a career plan? Um, I'm glad you asked this question because um, the only thing I knew I wanted to do, I wanted to cross the oceans and come to the United States because at that time, I'm thinking back now to 19... 76, 77, the US was the beacon of hope, of innovation, of creativity, of culture. And I wanted to be part of this ecosystem. I was sure my parents won't let me go. So when I got into Yale and they kind of sort of agreed, that was like, oh my God, something you know, is in the stars that my, even my parents have agreed to let me go. That's the only thing that I planned for. Everything else resulted because the jobs came my way or I needed to have a job that paid me enough to be able to move to the next uh, assignment. So coming out of BCG, I did a consulting summer job because I was told that consulting gave you a broad <clears throat> view of industry, of the issues in industry. So when I was given the opportunity to work at Booz Allen Hamilton, I took it because I wanted to get a great perspective. When I graduated, BCG made me an offer. BCG was the father of strategy consulting. So I joined BCG again. I wanted to learn strategy consulting. And then on, it became more personal than professional. I joined companies for the people that interested me, the people who made me feel like that company could help me develop and thrive, whether it was following Gerhard Schulmeier through Motorola and ABB, whether it was coming to PepsiCo because of Wayne Calloway and how he made an outreach to me at um, ABB to get me into PepsiCo. I think all of it was people-driven and um, there was no grand plan. I just followed my instincts and one thing led to another. I kept doing the job well and doing it with a great amount of passion. I threw myself into every job. And as a consequence, I produced an output that was better than the others. And I did it with a sense of the company, not a sense of me. I was always focused on how to make the company a better place. And uh, I never once asked for a promotion because I've never ever gone to somebody and say, I'm due for a raise, I'm due for a promotion. Never did. It just happened. And I think uh, it's better to manage your career that way as opposed to having a plan which says, I want to be CEO in 15 years. Right. And you're so fixated on that, you forget the job. So I think just do the job that you've been given very well and let the arc of your career take its course. The results speak for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, you had to make many career transitions. And as you mentioned in your, in your answer, it's about following your curiosity, following people, following the right set of mentors, not a rigid set of plan. But looking back, do you have some advice on career transitions about 
the timing, the kind of growth and the people to follow. Any insights on that? Because we got a lot of questions from our members on, on this topic. So I think that no career is linear. And I think if anybody thinks a career is going to be linear, then they're crazy. Because the more exciting part is to allow it to take interesting twists and turns, like, you know, a brook. If you ever read um, the poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called The Brook, yeah. it's a favorite poem of mine. It talks about how it meanders, flows through different places, and then joins the big sea. That's the way I look at my life, you know, it meanders through all kinds of places. But along the way, you pick up experiences, you pick up, um, you know, uh, learnings, you pick up knowledge about industries that all coming together give you a rich perspective on whatever you're doing. So look for the best experience, look for the best learning job, look for the best boss, look for the best mentor as you look for the next, next experience. And if at any job you feel you are stagnated, if you feel you're not being respected, get the hell out. Uh, now, it's easy for me to say because some people need the paycheck, they're very afraid to give up a job without another job. That's a very practical consideration and don't underestimate that. In my case, I had a working husband and uh, we knew how to live on very little. We always planned our life around just one paycheck and said, you know, let's not live life beyond our means. So when you plan life that way, you know, if you feel like the job is not giving you as much intellectual stimulation or you're not being respected, I'm walking out. I'll figure my next step out. So I lived with that confidence, which actually stood me in good stead. But let me. You did. Go ahead. And you did, at least uh, uh, from what I understand, is that you did offer to leave many times at your prime um, when some or all of these conditions uh, happen to not work in accordance with your core values. So could Absolutely. you tell us about one such painful. instance? Yeah, there was painful to do that because you never want to just walk out. You want to make it work somehow or the other. The first one was at uh, Motorola. Um, I loved the company. I loved the people. I loved Chris Galvin, who was, you know, my uh, boss of sorts. Um, and um, I loved the company, except that I felt that the clock speed of implementing the recommendations from a big strategy mm. study was much too slow. Now, in large companies, implementing major change takes time. But I was impatient because I was thinking of Motorola as a tech company competing with the Silicon family, Silicon Valley behemoths. So I felt like we had to pick up our clock speed. And I felt that if we didn't do it, the company would be set, setting itself back. So I gave it time, I gave it time. Um, and then I had the pull of Gerhard calling me to come to ABV. So I looked at the two and I said, should I go, should I leave a company for an individual? Should I leave an institution for an individual? But at the end of the day, I decided to leave the institution for an individual because I wanted to learn more. I wanted to work in an environment that I would find myself excited as opposed to an easy lifestyle. You know, yeah. that's a tough choice, but at that point, even though I had a young child, I wanted to keep my brain active as opposed to a nine to five job, it's cushy, but why don't I just stay with this? Because I felt I would atrophy if I did that. Yeah. The second example was in PepsiCo. I felt that a couple of senior executives were not giving me the respect I deserved. 
and uh, just behaving in a way that I found inappropriate hmm. on a professional basis, inappropriate. And I waited. I talked about the issue with the CEO. I didn't think he was doing too much, even though he was watching this happening. So I said, okay, if you're condoning it by not saying anything, and this behavior continues, this is part of the culture of the company that I don't, I don't want to be a part of. So I walked into his office and said, guess what? I don't like this behavior. You've been watching it. So after this big presentation today, I'm leaving. And guess what? I don't want anything from you. I don't want a severance pay. I don't want anything. I'm just leaving. And I'm leaving with my head held high. And guess what? Everything changed after that. Don't yeah. make your leaving a big factor. Don't make hmm. it a drama. Just walk out with your head held high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I love this saying, you are what you tolerate. And you demonstrated through this that you're not going to tolerate this. And even if the CEO is passively uh, condoning it without actively being a part of it, I think it's his or her job to sort of fix it. Because there was a great line I read in a book some time ago. It said, if you're valuable on the outside, you're more valuable on the inside. I thought it was a fantastic <laughs> statement that I read, which said that you're valuable on the inside, but if people outside the company says, she's fantastic, she's a really great worker. And you know, when I came out of um, ABB, when I came out of BCG, BCG and then ABB, a lot of my clients respected me a lot. And people I met along the way respected me so much that in PepsiCo, I knew even if I walked out, I would land on my feet right away. If you're an unknown and you're not valuable on the outside, people on the inside tend to take you for granted. So I'm not asking you to market yourself. Don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to hire a PR agency and go and market yourself. That's a formula for disaster. Right. But do a great job and make sure you showcase that job in the right forums or with the right people. Yeah. And never underestimate who could be your supporter downstream. So yeah. treat everybody with respect. Yeah, and you've demonstrated it. Like one thing that struck me is that you've been able to scale relationships even when you were the CEO of one of the most powerful companies in the world. And I think that is something that people really admire, look up to you. And it's something that perhaps has helped your professional career as well and given you meaning. That's something that all yes, of us crave very for. True. Very true. You know, Indra, when I look at your uh, the first 10 years of your career, you've had some really hard days. Um, it, 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 there's so many of them that I, that I learned about. What kept you going? What were some of the hardest days like for you personally and professionally in the first 10 years of your career? And uh, how did you talk to yourself? What was the inner chatter like? Um, when you're learning so much that's new and you're not necessarily very good at it because it's so new. Consulting was a brand new uh, area. Leave India out for a second, my time in India. I'll talk about my time in the US. Yeah. Being in consulting, strategy consulting is not easy because here you are, a newly minted MBA student going into the seats of power and company and telling them how they might want to think about their business or the issues differently than they have been doing all the time, hmm. all the years before you got there. Um, it's a scary situation to be in. Um, it's a, a sort of a heady situation also because you feel very important, but that's not what you should focus on. You should focus on the job that you've been given, which means you've got to zoom in, understand the business, 
and zoom out and say, what do they need to do differently? Um, you know, I, I got pretty good at it, but in the early years, I either got caught in the minutiae or I tried to be too strategic. It's that zo constant zooming in and zooming out that you have to learn. Yeah. And if you don't get that balance right, you either end up with you know, nitty gritty suggestions, which really are not relevant, or too strategic uh, recommendation, which nobody can implement. Striking that right balance, I had to learn that. Yeah. I, I needed to have good bosses who taught me how to do that. And you had to listen and watch and learn and take some harsh feedback from both your people at BCG and the client organizations who say, why'd you bring this woman here? She doesn't know what she's talking about. You never mm. want that more than once. So you have to be a continuously reinventing person. Reinvent yourself, learn, reinvent, watch, observe, listen, not just people in your own company, people outside the company, watch, learn, listen. That cycle made me a better person, but it was painful along the way. When you see your performance appraisals that are so terrible, you go, oh my God, what have I done? But then don't get bogged down by the performance appraisal. Say, hey, this performance appraisal is a valuable learning tool hmm. so that you can get better at the next assignment. But if you get three bad performance appraisals, then you better leave before they throw you out. Mm. But make sure that every performance appraisal, you're getting better. Use yeah. these as critical documents. And one thing uh, um, which uh, struck me was that you're both a dreamer and a doer. And you often encourage young MBAs to, to sort of combine the macro and the micro, the, the dreaming and the doing. Could you, could you explain that in more detail and how can one develop this? How did you develop this art? I think we have to start off saying any business, any company is rooted in society. So yeah. right there, your aperture has to be widened to include hmm. the impact on society. What do you do for society? Uh, all our people come from society. So all your employees, you've got to worry about, they come from society. Companies have to be run for the long term. So you've got to understand what trends are happening in society over the long term that could impact the company. What technologies are coming around the horizon that could impact the company? So if you always start company out, that's a formula for disaster because mm. you become so uh, myopic in the way you think, you think an extrapolation of what you're doing is the right way to run the company. Wrong. You've got to open your lens, start future back. What are the big trends that are emerging that require you to change what the company is doing? If you approach your whole business that way, think of the future and then work backwards. So future back, you'll get a whole new vision of what you need the company to be. Now, mm. that's not a skill you're born with. So read, read all about megatrends, read about disruptions, read about why companies succeeded, why companies failed. Look, there's so much that's been written that we can learn from. Why mm. do we ignore all that? Read, read. I mean, now we can get abstracts. We can get summaries written for us. Read as much as you can. And if something interests you, then get the book and read the details. Yeah. So I think it's important that we learn from history. We learn from history of the world, history of your country, and your society, but learn from history of corporations. Learn from their mistakes. Learn from challengers. Learn from disruptors. Learn from people who died. Learn from all of that. I mean, companies who died, CEOs that made companies die. Learn from all that. 
and then develop your own perspective on how you want to run your business or your company. But be a lifelong student, Utkarsh. This is something I would plead with everybody in your community. Hmm. You have to be a lifelong student. You have no choice. Yeah, especially today in the 21st century when we have to reinvent ourselves so many yeah. times. And I think your career is a great example of uh, how you combine different disciplines to create you know, a body of knowledge that lasts. And second is that how do you keep learning, whether it was signing a billion and a half dollar check for IT uh, transformation within the company, incorporating design thinking, uh, which if time permits, I'd love to, to explore. Um, but a couple of personal questions now, Indira, before I you know, get back to some of the more strategic questions about your career. Tell me if uh, companies should compete or should they build their category of one? And has competition overall served you well or the industry well? And are you a competitive person? Um, I am a competitive person because my sister and I competed from the time we were born. Okay? <laughs> uh, but that is not uh, unhealthy competition, it was healthy competition. We both were competing to make ourselves a better version of ourselves. I wasn't competing to put her out or she wasn't competing to put me down. We were both competing to say, how can we be better at GK? You know, when we were growing up, there was no internet, there was nothing. GK was big, general knowledge questions were big. So we'd get these big books on general knowledge and we would read it cover to cover. And then we would try to knock each other out in GK competitions, debating competitions. This is what our life was about. So healthy competition is wonderful. Uh, when you come to the corporate world, competition is what keeps us alive. Competition is what drives us to greater performance as individuals, as teams, as a company. Um, but the problem has always been in competition. You look at competition through a very narrow lens. You, mm. think, you think competitors are your direct competitors that you've followed for a long time. Wrong. If you have a future back view of the company, you also have a future back view of who your competition is going to be. Because right. competitors are going to come from so many different areas. I mean, I'll give you one example. 15 years ago, would any retailer have said Amazon is going to be their competitor? Seriously, <laughs> nobody would have. Um, 25 years ago, would somebody have said Apple iPhone is going to control music, camera, communication, telephony, everything. And landline telephones are going to be a relic of the past? I don't think so. Five years ago, would somebody have said you could have remote offices with Zoom? And would, could we have conducted this interview remotely like this? I don't think so. Technology is upending everything as we know it. So you've got to think about competition very, very differently these days. That itself is a skill. In fact, I want to bring you back to something, Utkarsh. You know, you went to INSEAD. Phenomenal business school, phenomenal school. I think we now have to start thinking about how to teach all of this in business schools. How to zoom in and zoom out. Yes. How to connect dots about the future into seemingly unrelated shapes, which come into focus the closer you get to it. How do you do that? How do you think about competition in such creative ways that you're never caught by surprise when a competitor comes from nowhere and upends an industry? FinTech, it's happening in the financial services now. Yeah. It's being upended in every way. But I bet most banks didn't realize that they were going to get this kind of competition. 
How do you think about uh, disruptions or, or uh, almost dissatisfactions in industries to see how new competitors could come in? I think we're going to have to teach these skills in business schools if we want to get a truly holistic leader or a holistic person coming out of business schools. It's, um, I'm still learning it. I'll be honest with you. I'm still a student. I'm looking at YouTube videos, online courses. I'm still studying all this, but I don't think I'll ever catch up. I wish I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. I think uh, uh, the way you, you know, look at life, the way you're learning, I think this is the mindset that all of us need to have for the rest of our lives. Because the moment we, I feel that we get too complacent with, with how much we know, I think that's, the, that's where trouble starts brewing. Agreed. Totally agree with you. I don't think status quo is an option anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to ask you uh, something about you. You've written and spoken about feeling guilty a few times about, you know, balancing being a mom, being a CEO, being an exec, traveling, uh, being, a, uh, you know, just balancing the personal and professional. Tell me, is guilt rational? And why did you feel guilty of being, uh, of not being a full-time mother? Oh, I, you know, I think guilt is encoded into the DNA of most women. That's the reality. And I think nowadays it's slowly being engineered out of the DNA, but for some reason, perfection in every which way is what we all strive for, especially women strive for. You want to look perfect. You want to be the perfect mother. You want to be the perfect daughter, daughter-in-law. And if you are working outside the home, you also want to be the perfect worker. Hmm. And you're not willing to accept um, issues in any part of this life because that sets you back. And then people remind you, unlike men, people remind you, women are always too tall, too short. Um, they have too shrill a voice or too deep a voice or too manly a voice. Are they too emotional or they're not emotional enough? So look, women are judged all the time. Uh, you know, an older woman is considered an old woman. An old man is considered a silver fox. You know, it's like there are badges given to women all the time. Right. Um, you know, if you're not the perfect daughter and daughter-in-law, you're la labeled as not a very good catch for the husband. So mm. when you live in that sort of uh, environment in society, uh, guilt is inevitable, especially if you want to take on multiple jobs. Because being a mother is a full-time job, being a daughter, daughter-in-law, wife, these are pretty big jobs. And uh, being an executive is a full-time job. A CEO is three jobs rolled into one. How do yes. you balance it all? So there is going to be guilt. It took me a long time to give up the guilt, a long time. So recently I said, you know, I can't do anything about the past. I am not going to be guilty. I'm happy with my choices. I'm going to keep going. Um, sometimes kids have a way of reminding you that if only you'd been there for this event, things would have been great. Sure. Hmm. If only you had $200,000 of college loans to pay, you'd have realized the worth of your parents. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's yeah. pros and cons to each. So guilt is something that eats at you. Uh, but I think we've got to counsel people that um, it's okay to feel guilty, but don't let it consume you because people love to use guilt as a way to get you to work harder and just do everything more of, but it's not going to help you. If you want to be normal, if you want to be stress-free, let go of guilt. Yeah. And I think um, 
your book is coming out and uh, I'm pretty confident that once people read it, both men and women will, I think, be able to put achievement, ambition, um, guilt, and a lot of these things in perspective. Because, you know, you are a living, breathing example of how one can balance. Um, or balance may not be the right word, but basically figure out a framework that works, mm -hmm. which may or may not be perfect. But yeah. the next generation can build on it, iterate on it, perhaps through, you know, reading books like you, engaging through masterclasses like this. It's a conversation, as you said, uh, it's encoded in our DNAs and we have to sort of reinvent ourselves. And let's see where we go with that. Yeah, I think the best word is juggling. It's not balancing because balance suggests that the fulcrum is right in the middle. It's not a hmm. balancing act. It's literally a juggling act. Every day you're playing right. multiple roles and you say to yourself, how do I keep all these balls in the air without letting anything drop and um, do to the best of my ability? Because you don't want anything to drop. The challenge is not to take on more balls than you can juggle. And so, right. um, and then if something looks like it's dropping, what's the support system that's going to pick it up? That's the key. Right. Building that support system and uh, village that's going to enable you to fulfill your dreams. Uh, that's yeah. going to be the challenge. And you know what? Not everybody can do it on their own. You have to give people the support systems, the framework to be able to be whatever they want to be. Yes, so well said. Um, do you remember the night you became the president of PepsiCo? <sighs> do I remember it? When I was told I was going to be president, it was like 10 o'clock in the night and I was still working, drove home and... Um, I was going to tell my family the big news, president on the board of directors. And I pulled into the garage and came out excited, walk up the stairs and my mother's waiting there. And I go, mom, why are you here? You should be sleeping. She said, well, we've run out of milk. I said, can you go get some milk? I said, no, I got big news for you. She said, news is going to have to wait. Go get the milk. And, you know, being who I am, I go, I see that my husband's car is here in the garage. What time did he come in? He came in at eight o'clock. Why don't you get him to get the milk? Oh, he looked tired. I don't want to disturb him. Oh, okay. Not saying anything now, but I'll come back and have a word with you. So I drive out, get the milk. I come back. I say to her, I don't think you understand. I was just appointed president on the board of directors of PepsiCo. It's a huge deal. You didn't want to listen to me. All that you wanted me to go get milk. She just gave me this look to say, what's wrong with you? She said, look, let me be clear. When you enter this house, you're the wife, the mother, the daughter, the daughter-in-law, nobody can take that place. So you can be president, you can be on the board, I don't care. Just leave that crown in the garage and know your role as you enter the house. Now, I've had a lot of time to think about it, Utkarsh, because mm. on the one hand, it's your mom, you accept whatever she says. With my mom, you never argue, you just accept whatever she says. I said, fine, okay, crown in the garage. I bet you wouldn't have said that to Raj. You know, I was muttering under my breath saying, why are guys allowed to bring their crown home and I have to leave it in the garage? But then, you know, in 10 seconds, it was forgotten. Later on in life, I've been thinking a lot about what mom said. Because what she's really telling me is that when you have a family, when you have kids, and I had daughters, she said, um, they don't work for you. You're their mother. And you're the only mother they're going to have. So hmm. don't forget that role. So she grounded me in a way. She grounded me in a way. She was there to support me and my children and my family. 
So in a way, she was giving me the support system, but she was also saying that you have to remember that you can't have children and delegate responsibility completely to somebody. You've got to interact with them and make sure that you're also serving the roles of mother and wife because mm. at some point you can't look back and say, man, I lost all this because it will be lost if you don't engage with that system. The third thing she was saying was, I'm going to help you with your support system by being the accelerator, but I'm also going to put the brake to say, mm. don't forget that life is more holistic than being a narrow career-minded person. So in a way, I'm deeply grateful to my mother for mm. these incredible tough lessons and tough love she gave me because it made me a, a more holistic person. Mm. And I think, um, I'm not sure my kids love the fact that I worked or if I'd given up my job, they wouldn't have liked it. So it's a complex equation, but at the end of the day, I think my kids are proud of me. My husband and I are still happily married. And um, in spite of all of our ups and downs, we've emerged stronger as a family mm. with all of those experiences. The crown in the garage has never left me. Never <laughs> left my thinking. But before I move on from this question, do you think there's a tiny gender aspect to this as well? Tiny? Massive I mean, gender. Yeah, okay. Are you kidding yeah. me? She would never have told my husband that. Okay? I think in today's world, both husband and wife should leave their crown in the garage because mm. this is not about the wife leaving it and the husband bringing it. I think when you come home, both of you are equally responsible for the family, for the children, for your parents, in-laws, whatever you're taking care of, you're responsible for them. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, nobody should bring their crown into the garage because there's no need to. Okay, mm. There's no need to bring uh, the crown into the house. Believe me, the crowns are uneasy things to wear on the head because uh, they're also tough, uh, the roles that you have to play uh, with wearing a crown. But come home, be yourself, focus on the family, focus on each other, the kids. It's a way better thing than, you know, the woman leaving the crown, the guy has brought the crown into the house, which is how it used to be. Things are changing and they have to change with Kirsch. Big time. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, like on the DNA aspect, my mom is a poet and, you know, like we, uh, Tennyson was often discussed at home. One of the things that she reminded me in one of the poems she wrote is that in Hindi, uh, in textbooks often, it's written Ram Pat Shala Ja, Radha Khana Paka. So which means that Ram go to school, Radha cook food. And then she basically looked at academic you know, sentences and books in Indian, uh -huh. Indian textbooks. And it's basically the gendered aspect doesn't leave you, whether you're in the kitchen or the boardroom or in the classroom. And I think even your mom, who's such a big proponent of you, is such a played a key role in your becoming the CEO, uh -huh. building your category of one. She also sometimes maybe like to remind you of the brick before she pushed the accelerator. I mean, I'm not commenting on it, just like listening to it or reading it made me uh, just uh, go back I, to Rampart, Shalajan, Radha, You know, I can now understand her even more. Let's not forget, she was a product of those times. Right? She was born in the 40s, 30s, 40s. Yeah. So she was a product of that time. And um, in those days, women didn't work outside the house. They yeah. were the uh, people who kept the house going. When the husband came home, they had the hot, hot cup of coffee, the meal, the snack, everything ready. 
the kids. I mean, I grew up with a mother at home. But I also grew up with a mother who said, dream as much as you can. You can be anything you want to be, but I'm going to get you married off at 18. Mom, these are incompatible. That's okay. I'll worry about that. You just worry about doing well in school and dreaming. I'll worry about finding the husband. You know, so we have all these tough conversations, but we also had men in our family who said, uh-uh, you're not going to get married at 18. You're going to be whatever you want to be. And I think deep down inside, my mother was thrilled that the men in the family were also saying that because yeah. she, she would have been made a fantastic CEO. She was a, she's a fabulous lady, but she couldn't do it in her time. So she lived life through us. I believe she couldn't go to finish college or go to college because of challenges. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any advice for working couples uh, to figure out uh, work and home, especially in the crunch years of uh, uh, professional growth of women? You know, I've often said the biological clock and the career clock are in conflict with each other. Because Hmm. when you have to have kids, you have to work your way through entry-level positions. When you get to middle management, the pyramid is narrowing. You've got to work harder, okay? Uh, and when your kids are teenagers, they also need you. So these are tough uh, transition moments where you need a fantastic support system. Let me tell you, today's world, especially post-pandemic, the one thing that we've all learned is the power of technology and the fact that you can work flexibly. You can work from home. You can work you know, remotely. You can work flexible hours. That's a very positive thing. But I think as a society, if we don't provide young families with access to great childcare, and care as a whole, senior care, childcare, I don't know how we can produce productive citizens of the future Mm. and engage the best and brightest of the workforce to improve the economy of any country. Because the name of the game is talent. So you have to engage the best and the brightest. So you want women to be educated also. And the best and brightest, the whole pool, you want them to have the choice of working to further the economy. And if we don't put in a fantastic care infrastructure, I don't know how it's going to work. Right. Affordable, high quality, available, ubiquitously available, phenomenal zero to five care infrastructure until children can go to school. And perhaps as you talk about the multi-generational leadership, multi-generational support, could you, I mean, you've articulated your vision. Uh, Could you tell us a bit more about how might that pan out? How could policymakers and leaders think about this, uh, building this ecosystem of support and care? So there's no, um, no debate that when you have multiple generations living under the same household, and if they can get along with each other, that's very important. Hmm. And if each generation is willing to help the other generation, the young helping keep the old you know, vital and youthful, and the old willing to be role models and coaches and guides and mentors to the young people, it could lead to a very harmonious and cooperative uh, home structure and could help everybody. In our case, my grandfather was such a powerful figure in the house. He made us who we were. He was a teacher, he was the guide, he was the coach. He was the enforcer who said, these granddaughters of mine are all gonna study and be whatever they want to be. And my father followed suit. Now, 
had there been a lot of disputes between my mother and her father-in-law and uh, you know issues in the family that that makes it a very messy family um, we also came from a big family you know big uh, number of cousins and all that so there was always movement in and out of the house in today's small nuclear families but gosh i think we have to think about building trust in communities where mm. community elders step up to play the role of my tata where a community yes. elder says you know i've retired i was highly educated come you little ones let me provide some help for you mm. let me provide some tutoring let me tell you some stories let me i know it's all on the web but nothing like human interaction with a story we have forgotten those days of communities coming together to help each other grow and thrive and um, you know build bonds between each other yeah. there's a great book by eric klingenberg called palaces for the people hmm. it talks about how barber shops park benches coffee shops civic centers town centers all used to be palaces for people in the community to come together and build bonds of trust with each other right and change stories and learn from each other we have now retreated into our devices and started a cocoon and cocooning does not help build palaces for people and build communities of trust so if we want a future society that is caring for different generations and not having everybody retreat into a device hmm. it's very important we build these meeting points where people can come together talk and generations help each other overseeing child care centers providing role model providing stories providing history lessons providing tutoring sessions don't send them all to khan academy say come talk to me let me teach you how to do you know math or calculus or whatever let me teach it to you cursive writing in your case <laughs> that was fascinating yeah, yeah. the way you describe your house and the dictionaries that were lined one against the other <laughs> uh i think um, a lot of people who grew up with this support system would would learn a lot from it gives you a kind of confidence which doesn't come from attending a class on zoom and i think that's, that's something exactly that we right. have we are going through these days yeah. um indra i want to ask you a couple of questions about the strategy that you implemented at pepsi but uh, before that a quick one about wage inequity you went on to become one of the most uh, powerful and influential people on the planet ceo of pepsi co but is it not true that you also are a victim of wage inequity at some point in your career and what advice do you have for people um to be able to navigate such a scenario it's interesting that pay parity wage inequity has come into focus more recently when hmm. i was rising never a topic that was talked about i have never brought up my pay with anybody never did because i was so happy to get paid what i was getting paid and it was hell of a lot more than i was making in any previous job so right. happy with what i got later on you know when a new boss comes in and says hey you're not getting paid enough and raises your pay massively you go oh i wasn't being paid enough so that's when you start thinking about pay parity and inequities um today it's different because appropriately women are saying why is it for the same job i get paid anywhere from 5 to 15% less than a man who's getting paid that much more for doing the same mm. job um i think it's appropriate that 
people are calling attention to this. And uh, I think it's time that this became an issue that boards took up, an issue that company leaders address, not because somebody is telling them to address it, because they think it's wrong for two people doing the same job to get paid differently only because of their gender. That's got right. to stop. I think you've got to pay for talent, you've got to pay for output, not for how they look, their gender, their caste, color, creed, I don't care. Pay yeah. them for the job. I, think, yeah. I wouldn't call myself a victim of inequities. I would just say it's a different time. Hmm. And people like me, you know, have set the stage for discussions like this to happen. When we ascended to positions of power, we brought it to the front burner. Let's all work together to make sure that we think, keep this thing going and getting to pay equity as opposed to revisiting me. Because hmm. man, I had it good through my life. I have no complaints. Hmm. And also um, you have a very clear vision of how you develop talent within, within Pepsi and other companies that you serve. Um, you outlay a plan and you have like created systems, for example, the way you hire chiefs of staff and the way they went on to develop careers. Do you have any advice for young CEOs or CEOs in different parts of the world to really develop a strong talent pool the way you did at Pepsi? Um, you know, there's two things. One is a systematic talent development process. What's the process? What's the steps you put people through? And then there are people-driven processes where people put their hand up to do things that don't follow a process, but helps them jump a couple of levels or throws them out of the company because they fail, you know, like in a grand way. In many ways, I think when people came as my chief of staff, that was not part of any career plan mm. because our career plan didn't have go be chief of staff for the CEO. However, when I went to a very promising executive, I saw in a meeting and I said, come and be my chief of staff. Nobody said no. That was surprising to me. The minute I asked, within a few hours, they'd come back and say, I'd love to do it. Even though they knew the job was tough, the job was working with a very demanding CEO. It was 24 seven, I had to travel a lot. They had to travel with me. They knew all that, but nobody said no. Why is that? I think they felt that for the 18 months or 24 months that they'll be, be with me, they would learn much, much more than they would following any normal career track even if their future career was not going to be in PepsiCo, they realized they would be so much better for having been around a CEO so closely, watching how the CEO thinks, how they prepare for meetings, how they interact with world leaders. They felt that that experience was more important than anything else. So yeah. one piece of advice to people in your network community, I would say, when a job comes your way, don't say, is this a nice, safe, bet for my next move. Don't do a job where you're a good, safe pair of hands. I hate that word. Mm. Take on a job that uh, challenges you, that's tough, that allows you to leave a mark on the company. Right. A job that has a long shelf life and that people remember you for the job you did. So take on, put your hand up for the tough assignments. Be known for the fact that you could demystify the mysterious, that you could make the complex simple and you could devise solutions for it. Become a go-to person for something. Yeah. If you did that, let me assure you, Utkarsh, 
your career is set. If you take on safe assignments and say, I don't want to work with the CEO because she's too demanding and if it doesn't work out, I'll be forever branded as a failed chief of staff. Right. Take a chance, have confidence in yourself. Remember, I don't want you to fail either. When you come to work for me, I want you to succeed. I'll do everything to make you succeed. But you're going to have to put in the effort too. Yes. So you've got to look at each job and your next assignment as, where am I going to learn and develop the most? As opposed to, where am I going to be the safest? And I think this is also connects back to the earlier remarks that you gave on career transitions and how to, how to choose your, uh, your next job. And I would like to remind our uh, listeners that it so happened in Pepsi that all the toughest problems started coming to you. And I think this is the biggest endorsement, at least as, a, as somebody who studied your career, that she's the one who solves tough problems. And that reputation doesn't develop overnight. Do you want to share a couple of sentences on how that happened and um, how did you sort of become the magnet of tough problems? I think two things. One, uh, you know, tough problems usually landed in my lap. Other times, if I found that there was something going on in the company which impacted the company or the CEO, or which you know, involved the CEO, and I felt that what I was seeing was not of great quality, I would typically lean in and ask to work on it. I'm going to give you an example. Yeah. But before I go there, I want to give a more tangible example of people leaving jobs or people agreeing to work with me because they thought they would learn. I have a new chief of staff, Simi Shah, um, graduated, from, graduated from Harvard in 2019, an absolutely brilliant young kid, brilliant young girl, young woman. She was working in private equity and running her own podcast and she's wonderful. This job came up, chief of staff, and somebody reached out to her and said, you know, Indra is looking for a chief of staff. She thought about this and said, I'm going to learn more from this job than being in private equity or doing whatever else I'm doing. She quit her job and came to work for me, even though this is just for a time bound area, you know, period of about a year. She's come here and she's contributing more to this job than I ever expected, but she's learning a ton to the process. You see, she said, hey, I'm 23. I'm, I could take these chances now. Will I get this opportunity again? No. So she's learning. So that's the kind of spirit you've got to have. Yeah. Let me now turn to the first question we're talking about. I think it was 97 or 98. I was new in PepsiCo, what, four or five years in PepsiCo. And we were on many years, we were doing a day-long investor presentation. And my husband and I were due to travel to a big customer meeting with the PepsiCo senior brass in Switzerland. My husband, I had to convince him to take a few days off to go to this very fancy meeting. And reluctantly he did. And just before we left, I was thumbing through this investor presentation. Investor relations did not report to me, I had nothing to do with it, but it was, my CEO had it and I just thumbed through it. And I thought it was a lousy presentation. I thought it didn't capture the essence of PepsiCo. So I went to my boss and I said, hey boss, this presentation, I think, can be done way better. Hmm. And he looked at me and said, you're never happy with any output unless you, you work on it and work on it to make it better. So what's wrong with this? I explained to him what I thought could be done to improve 
the quality of the output. And um, I laid out a general framework. I said, I don't know if this is going to work, but you might want to consider these changes. So in a typical brash Roger Enrico way, he looked at me and said, well, if you think it's got to be changed, you're the only person who can change it because there's no way you can communicate what you're saying to somebody else. And we are one week away from the investor meeting. I looked at him and said, okay, I have two choices. I can go to this big customer meeting with my husband or cancel out and work on this so that we have a better investor relations presentation. Hmm. I went home and I said, Raj, we're not going. I'm gonna stay back and fix this. And um, uh, he said, why did you ask me to take a week off to go on this? I said, I'm so sorry, but I cannot have us go out with this presentation and uh, I'd feel terrible if it didn't land well with investors. So I spent the next week in the office redoing this entire presentation. Uh, and it ended up being one of the best investor presentations we ever gave. Now, did I piss off people in the process? Yeah, there were a couple of people in investor relations who wondered why I was interfering in investor mm. relations. So I went and explained to them why I was not interfering in investor relations. I just had an idea of how to make it better. I want to make them look good. So I'm going to work with them to make it look better. At the end of the day, it's their work product. They will get the credit. But I will yeah. work with them to get it to a better place. Got it. Okay. And so that's the whole idea of how you work for the company. How do you make things better? And uh, how you become the go-to person for difficult projects. Yeah. No, it's so well explained. So you actively sometimes solve a problem when you see it and do whatever it takes to get it done. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so Indra, there are about five minutes left. I was wondering, uh, is it a hard stop or could we go on for a bit more? You know, go 10 minutes until they come and yank me out. Got it. That'll be perfect. We'll finish it by then. Um, so PWP, Performance with Purpose, I think transformed the trajectory of Pepsi. What was the most satisfying part of implementing PWP? And what were the challenges that you encountered? I'm specifically interested in, did you estimate these challenges or did these challenges surprise you and you had to improvise to, to make the message land the way you thought? So there were people challenges and there were technical challenges. The technical challenges we anticipated and you know we kept working at it. How do you get the same taste with lower sugar? How do you get a zero calorie natural sweetener to work in colas, which we still haven't solved. So those were technical challenges. And you know, those require work, they require experimentation, formulations, all of that stuff. How do you reduce water in our plants? Technical challenge. Those all expected work through them. The people challenges are what bugged me. Mm. I say that because the biggest pushback I got was, why do we have to change our portfolio to healthier products? Because all of you have changed your eating and drinking habits, guys. Look at what you're drinking. All of you are drinking lower calorie products and non-carbonated beverages and water. I know it's about choice. We provide choice. But I want choice along with nudging. I want to provide choice, but I want to nudge people to the healthier option. I want to nudge people to... Uh, uh, have the equally great tasting product with lower calories to something that provides positive nutrition. So I, I, I'm not saying I'm going to tell you what to eat and drink. 
but I'm going to nudge you towards the healthier choices. That's all. Because at the end of the day, I felt that as society was moving to a more sedentary society, it behooved us to change the products we were offering a more sedentary society. Hmm. We tried to get them out to go exercise, but you know, the problem is if you really want to take all that's on the web, it's a all-consuming 24 hours. You don't right, have to right. leave. I mean, I don't have to leave this chair. I can look at the web and spend every minute of the day. I can drink and eat with these two hands while I'm consuming from the web. Here's my problem. That doesn't make for a healthy lifestyle. Hmm. So I needed to go out and walk and exercise and consume healthily so that you are healthy. And if God help, we have another pandemic. You have no comorbidities that allow you to remain healthy through a pandemic. So it all comes together. So to me, the biggest challenge was people questioning why we needed to go to a healthier product offering. And um, I felt that in many ways, the moral code of their life and the moral code of their livelihoods were in conflict with each other. But you made it work. There were activist investors in the middle. There were skeptics within the company. Um, there's market perception to take care of. And I think that's where the role of a, of a CEO is so important. You'd have to balance the short term and long term. You have to be the dreamer and the doer. You have to mm. you know, manage the frustrating aspects of your job and the most satisfying aspects of the job. But you stuck through it. That means you must have had deep conviction and a you know, clear strategic uh, oversight of how you might want to implement it. Um, what was like, you know, can you tell us a bit about the things that you had to change your mind or iterate your strategy while implementing the PWP? Um, I looked at, I did a piece of work on future back. What are the big mega trends that are going to impact our industry and PepsiCo over the next yeah. decade or two? So I had a clear view of that and worked backwards. And Indra, I think people would love to know what future back is. I was blown away by the way you wrote it. And I was about to ask you, how did you combine so many disciplines? So maybe a bit of one sentence on what is Future Back. Future Back is looking at mega trends that are going to impact your industry and your company. And don't just, you know, you can get lots of trend analysis from a lot of people. Pull all of that together. Pick the 10 most important trends that you have to worry about, that you have to respond to by changing things in the company that could be disruptive. So we identified those 10 trends. But not just identify them, we said, for these 10 trends, what do we need to change inside the company in terms of strategy, uh, investments, people capabilities, leadership capabilities, the board of directors, uh, alliances and acquisitions and divestitures we had to make. It was a codified memo. And the most important thing is I got the board of directors to buy into it. Hmm. The most important piece of work I did. Um, team of people, I give them all credit. But the board of directors, once they bought into it, you could come and argue with me on what I was doing in terms of why you're going towards healthier products because the trend is for more health and wellness. So the trend is towards more health and wellness. I have to go to healthier products. So don't question whether I'm going to healthier products because I just want to do it. Question whether the trend is right or not. If you tell me the trend is right, obviously I have to change my strategy. So I made people always go back to the strategic underpinnings of my actions as opposed to my actions. Mm. 
So, and the strategic underpinnings came out of the megatrends work. So by forcing people to think a little bit at 10,000 feet as opposed to, if you don't invest in this, I'll get more returns. Yeah, but I won't have a company in five years. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to have an eye towards the future and your board has to be lockstep with you. When that happens, Utkarsh, there's music. There because is. then you're really positioning the company for the long term. You're running the company for the duration of the company, not the CEO. And by definition, you're balancing level and duration of returns intelligently. Yeah. intelligently. You know, this aspect of what you just mentioned, we try to, we run a, a, a chain of schools on the cloud for kids, 8 to 18 year old. And I think yeah. this first principles thinking is so important. And I don't think schools, uh, you know, not just in India, around the world, do a good job of enabling people to understand how, you know, the edifice of knowledge builds. So the way you Agreed explained you. it comes through. Yeah. To me, the biggest takeaway of Future Back was how you looked at sociology, history, you spoke of nudge behavioral economics in writing that paper. So it was not, it was yeah. not a tweet. It was like, you know, spent with hours of effort and deep work. And I think we encourage our like kids, our school students to, you know, try and learn, you know, by combining disciplines. Yeah, it's a 20, 25 page document. And, you know, I think um, the, the most difficult thing in writing the book was how do we talk about all this in one book? Hmm. Uh, at the same time, lead to what needs to change in society. So as I thought about performance with purpose, the whole mega trends memo, talking about how you develop conviction around a strategy and yeah. then stick with it through thick and thin and get people on your side. You know, th those were the toughest parts to write in the book. Yeah. So you're right, Utkarsh. I mean, this is a book that requires going chapter by chapter and thinking through what did this chapter actually say? And it's as much a learning tool as much as it's a book about my life in full and what it means for work, family, and our future. I mean, it's both written and edited exceptionally well. I will say that, you know, because it's one you can read very quickly. So you can, yeah. uh, you can point out to the fact. My, my, author, my writer deserves all the credit for that. She did a fantastic <laughs> job in writing it in a way that was engaging. And she has this gift of turning everything into lyrics and music. She, yeah. So she created that musicality in the book, uh, but it's still the hard lessons were not lost. And uh, I think she did a very good job. Yeah. Uh, in 2015, I read an HBR article of how Indra Nui combines uh, design thinking in her uh, corporate strategy. Yeah. Again, like it points to the fact that multidisciplinary learning. Could you tell us a bit about how that idea came to you and how you implemented it? Because it went on to become a key part of how PWP fructified, yeah. our listeners would love to, to understand that. Yeah, I think the book delves into that in, fair, in great depth. But yeah. I'll tell you, um, I would go on market tours every weekend. I would just put on my jeans and drive, you know, an hour or two around from where I lived. I would just walk around stores like a regular shopper. And I wanted to get a sense for how a product looked on the shelves. Happened early in the, my time at, as CEO, I kept doing it. And I realized that a lot of upstarts were taking a lot of the growth away from us. And uh, people were drawn to them. Uh, the labels were not great. So the products were not healthy or anything of that sort, but the package was more attractive. The package drew people into that category, into their products. 
We had the better brands, but we were a sea of color. They were a sea of messaging. And so came back to the office and said, I'm gonna read everything I can about design, packaging, design of the concept, design of the whole fundamental proposition. And I realized that that thinking was not in the company. I went and hired myself this unbelievable designer, Mauro Puccini from 3M, who transformed the way we think about design. And I learned that design is not about the package alone. It's about the experience. It's about how it shows on shelf in your pantry, how the product is designed for the user, how you design everything from every touch point when you think of the product to the time it's in the pantry and there's a repeat purchase. Uh, there's so many touch points to worry about. And that's yeah. what led to design thinking. And I think at last count, I was talking to Mauro recently and in the last maybe eight years, they've gotten something like 480 design awards globally. One of the most uh, awarded uh, companies in the CPG world. And some yeah. of the stuff yeah. they do is just fantastic, but it's all oriented towards how do you build a stronger bond between the consumer and our product through an experience as opposed to just a product? Yeah, you've designed an experience. You've also designed a course. Now PWP yep. is part of the INSEAD curriculum. Right. Um, again, my regret, I graduated by then. But what has been the most interesting aspect of teaching that course? Because now you're enabling B-school kids to learn it and scale it and apply it in their work. The most uh, fulfilling part of it is uh, I got to know NCR, I got to know Subi, but most importantly, there's, there's classes oversubscribed, which means that there's real interest in hmm. this course. Yeah. I have to tell you, you, you're from a fantastic school. NCR is about as international as it gets. And I mean, it's an amazing school. The more, every time I go there, the caliber of the students, the faculty blows me away. So the fact that those high caliber students sign up for this course in large numbers and stay engaged for those two and a half days and ask great questions, makes me feel great that the yeah. next generation will focus on performance and purpose increasingly. And lots of women sign up, lots of men sign up. It's great to see yeah. like the balance there. True. And I think uh, that's incredibly well. You know, we're coming towards the close of uh, yep. this particular summit. Um, just like, um, I, I wanted to your thoughts on when a female CEO leaves, the glass ceiling is restored. Can you explain the context of this New York Times headline and uh, if and why do you find it problematic? Well, basically what they're saying is that when a female CEO leaves and doesn't replace themselves with another female CEO, uh, basically- so the expectation was that you will basically hire a female CEO, gotcha. But here's the point. They only ask women, why, do you, why you don't replace yourself with the women? They never ask a man, why didn't you replace yourself with the woman? woman CEO, which is crazy because women CEOs make up such a small part of the S&P 500. The bigger problem is the following. I actually developed a lot of women who could be potential CEOs, but somewhere in the senior middle management, they get hired off to be CEOs of other companies that are smaller. And at that point, they sit down and ask themselves the question, do I want to go that last few levels to vie for CEO PepsiCo where, you know, it's going to be a long shot. I'm competing with so many other men who are also running big businesses. Or should I take the CEO opportunity in front of me now? Because I'm still going to make a lot of money and do what I want to do. 
So they leave. And I think I've produced four or five women CEOs of other public companies. So the track record is good, but um, I would have loved to have replaced myself with a woman, but at the end of the day, I want to replace myself with the most competent person. Yeah. That had, and I wish there had been a, that had been a woman, but at that point, was not available. The board picked Ramon, who was the most competent person of the pool of people there. Um, I think that the time has to come where we shouldn't be asking, is there a woman to replace this person? It's got to be, which of these women can replace this person? We've got to change the whole dialogue, yes. which means that we have to build a larger group of people who come up. We've got to provide the support system so they can also balance family and work and having children so that if they want to be CEO, they're all being considered for the job of CEO. Right. Purely because of their capability and merit, not because they're women or of a different gender or ethnicity or whatever. I don't care about that. Let's go for talent. Awesome. Just last question before we part ways. Thanks again for your time. Uh, any parting advice for you know millennials, Gen Z, school students trying to build their category of one, trying to uh, learn from you? I want to say something which I did not follow as advice, Kush, because I didn't have the luxury of following that advice. You live life once. Yeah, work hard, you know, follow your passion, all that stuff, but also spend time with your family, spend time with your hmm. kids, spend time with your spouse, your parents. Uh, understand your intergenerational responsibilities very carefully. And, um, you know, take time for yourself. Take time for yourself. The world is a stressful place. Don't let the job burn you out. Because once you go into a dark place, there's no way to come out of it. So take time for yourself. Relax, decompress. You know, uh, worry about yourself as much as you do about everybody else. Thank you so much, Indra. This masterclass will be watched by every single Network Capital community member in 112 countries. And I know they will read and relish your book, which comes out shortly. Thank you so much for spending time with us. It was inspiring. And I really look forward to meeting you very soon, Indra. Same here, Utkarsh. I look forward to it very much. And all the best to you.